coming up on Art Palace. And then you have like room 237, which is very like 60s, 70s, kind of mod, amazing. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool people are Katie Parker and Guy Michael Davis from Future Retrieval. They've joined me again to discuss their film influences, specifically Stanley Kubrick's The Shining from 1980. This conversation was originally a part of the Art, Histories, and Adaptations film and discussion series, and if you'd like to watch the video version of this conversation, visit cincinnatiartmuseum.org adaptations. Hi, uh, I'm Guy Michael Davis. Hi, I'm Katie Parker. And we're the uh, artist Future Retrieval. When we were last talking, uh, we were talking about your film inspirations and how that has become something that influences your work a lot. So tell us a little bit about some of those inspirations and how you see them affecting you. One of the pieces in the exhibition, Image of Order, is completely ripped off of 2001, A Space Odyssey. So we built the room at the end of the film um, where the old guys in the bed and the rooms like lit from below. And so I think for us, these films and these scenes just put you into um, this kind of magical world. And that's what we're trying to do with our work. And I don't, it's hard to get that other places, but the production value and the um, kind of visual opulence that can happen in a film, I think is something we're always like looking for and pulling from. Mm -hmm. like our joke before we moved here was we watched Raising Arizona, which has one of like the most surreal houses I've ever seen. Um, it's part of the background for the plot of the film. So we're always looking at that and like plucking little bits. Cleopatra was another film we had mentioned using for this film series. It's so long and it's truly a horrible film. No one wants to watch that, but the the visuals and the optics are mind-blowing there's this fantastic parade scene that's just like the the biggest spectacle you can possibly imagine um but yeah i think it's the the you know the feeling that you get out of these movies and um that really kind of strikes us and we we try to kind of encapsulate that and try to figure out ways to bring that back into your work and and to like you know this take this moving thing and bring it into this uh static um object you know and i don't know how successful we are with it but that becomes like this kind of driving force you know tell me a little bit more about the house in raising arizona because it's been a very long time since i've watched it and i don't really have a memory of it right now it's like uh is it like peewee's play you love peewee's playhouse yeah but where everything's like like loves it but everything's like big and small and like I don't know if it's from the kids' view where they're supposed to be looking up, so everything's kind of strange and distorted. And oh yeah, it's like uh, scale scale shifts, perspective shifts, uh, strange lighting. Yeah, I think. it's like kind of wild west wooden style, like true west western, um, rather than but like fifties yeah. yeah. western, and classically domestic. I think yeah, like homey and and has all the characteristics of something that you would expect out of someone who's anticipating raising a family. <laughs> yeah. Now that you mention it, like my, a lot of my memories of that movie are from that like kid perspective. Yeah. So I didn't ever think about it being sort of built into the set, that sort of distortion, but I'll have to rewatch it now with that in mind. Cause that's that's definitely something I can remember is like that low, really low angles yeah. looking up. Yeah. And so I think that's, you know, maybe it's some of those like um, strategies for, you know, scenes and, and displays and things that we're really pulling uh, quite a lot from. I, I think th- there's definitely some kind of narrative elements that we bring into the work from the films, but largely we're looking at, at the um, the set. Yeah. Right? 
something that you've already brought up, which is the idea of world building. But if there was any other angles of, of how you think that idea relates to your work. I think the the world building would be when you go into, it's kind of back to the period rooms and the decorative arts side of um, museum installation as well. But where you go into a space and everything's been taken care of, there's a wallpaper, there's chandeliers, there's sconces, there's, uh, you know, some kind of um, some kind of entry table and the thing sits on the table. But it's not the thing alone on a pedestal or the thing alone kind of in blank space. It's this thing mm-hmm. in this world that kind of sucks you in. If you think about your peripheral vision, if you close that off, you're getting this whole scene in this whole world right there and in films you're getting that as well so i think that's that's what i want to do with our work i want to overload our objects to the point where all you're seeing is kind of this world that we envision the ideal world ideal world we want them to be in and that's what people do in their homes right you create this environment this sensation or feeling we have this poster from the bauhaus and it says in german i think it says uh, Edgar, the, the vase is part of our environment. And I like stare at that thing all the time. And it's like so weird, but it's it, that's really about like uh, the effect uh, and affect that objects have on us um, and how like an object can change the mood or the um, sensation or the atmosphere of a space. And so I think that we can kind of distill all these things and maybe into to smaller components sometimes. You know, we do, to some degree, we create these atmospheric um, environments, but also sometimes these things get distilled into objects. I, I'm, I, I cannot not ask you more about Peewee um, because this is very formational for me. I would not be the person I am today if I did not like watch a lot of Peewee's Playhouse and... Pee-wee's Big Adventure over and over again. Um, what are the long-term effects for you? <laughs> what are the long-term Pee-wee? effects of like memorizing every line from Pee-wee's Big Adventure? Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. You know, I think it's the. This, of course, it's Tim Burton too, but you know, that's the joyful darkness. I think maybe something that we really respond to, or I always did, even going way back, and the eeriness and the obscurity and the the awkwardness you know, maybe we can relate to or something. As far as Pee-wee's Playhouse goes, that's like a whole other thing of as far as like yeah. uh, social awkwardness and, and darkness and, and um, creating this like environment, this really kind of very specific environment for, for playfulness and learning in a weird way. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that was like Mark Mothersbaugh, I think, did the music for that. And yeah. a John DeFazio yeah. was one of the like, designers for that and he makes this weird super weird stuff but you know something there i can totally see a connection is like peewee's world both like his home in peewee's big adventure and the playhouse are a lot of time are, are these spaces that have a lot of collisions of style and they're sort of different time periods butting up against each other. There's sort of a lot of things from the past, certainly. Um, Pee-wee's pretty obsessed with, I think, things from like the 60s and 50s a lot. So, you know, even like in the 80s, he's looking back, you know, 30, 20 years. Um, Yeah, it's so thematic. And uh, yeah, you're right, because you had like a cowboy and you had like a a pirate or a captain and, (laughs) you know, like every, every kind of, uh, generalized <laughs> uh, uh, subculture or whatever, you know, all thrown into one basket. Yeah. There's also a lot of, like, the house is alive, too, in this weird way where, you know, like, the floor has a face and comes up and talks to you and, like, all of the fixtures. And when I think about how you guys use animals in uh, in decoration, like, there's this feeling of, like, the furniture is alive <laughs> in that same way of like, uh, you know, cherry might start talking to you. <laughs> I also, it, it was making me think about the idea of taste and good taste and bad taste and um, how you see that fits into your work. Because I think there is a lot of sort of collisions of these different styles. And I don't know if that's something you think about. 
Well, I think one thing that we've always kind of embraced is um, like weirdness and maybe even misunderstanding to some degree. Like we always think we have this conversation a lot. Like if we make this thing and we don't understand it, um, we can't really wrap our heads around it. We can't really quite nail it down. And it just seems sometimes even out of place. Then maybe we're actually going somewhere. Because if we if we have everything all packaged up and ready to go and we know what it is and it seems like already part of this continuum um, that everyone understands, then um, I don't know. It's just not as exciting or something for us anyway. So I think that kind of unknown yeah. or something. That's kind of been the motto. Like if both of us can't understand if it's good, then maybe it's great. Um, but if it's, yeah. if it's something that you know, and you understand, and it looks like it should be there, maybe that's a little too easy. And I think to your question of taste, just thinking about what you live with or how you style or what clothes you put on, it's the thing you do that doesn't feel right. And then in two weeks, it looks like it was always meant to be that way. Uh -huh. You just have to get over that yeah. initial, like, yeah, yeah. Mm, I don't know. Yeah, it's this like discomfort of, of. Um, through a lack of understanding, right? And that comes in a lot of things, right? Like you get the new album from your favorite band and you're like, oh, this sucks, you know? And then you listen to it five times, it's like, this is their best album, <laughs> you know? And so <clears throat> maybe it's kind of like that. Yeah, but when we build these scenes or worlds or displays, it, it's not, it's usually not right at first. And sometimes it's so not right, uh -huh. it could be wrong for a very long time. And then, we, we just have to trust our kind of intuition and yeah. gut and yeah. like past experience of what we've put together that has worked yeah. to kind of give it a moment to do that thing that the album does to kind of flip on you. Yeah. Like, is this the best song I've ever heard? Yes. Why did I hate it at the beginning? It... Uh -huh. And, it, you know, we hope that there's quality and I don't know if we know exactly how to nail down what quality is or if anyone actually can completely define what quality is. Um but we did, we gave a talk once and I've always kind of also embraced this, this, this fellow came up afterwards and he was just like, I totally get it. I get your work. This totally makes sense. I'm a DJ. And what you guys are doing is oh, yeah. you're making a mixtape. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, this totally makes sense because we're picking all these things that are um, often of, you know, other makers, cultures, you know, times. You know other people's <laughs> yeah. creative work. And everyone's done this. Everyone's made, you know, a playlist of some sort. But then you own that because you curated that stuff and you selected it and you went through the labor of compiling all that together in an order that maybe you're trying to even tell some kind of emotional story that you don't understand, but it just feels right. And then you have this thing and it's it's your mixtape and you're like, oh, you can listen to my mixtape or I'll share it. You know, you can listen to my, I'll <laughs> share it with you, you know. And so there's this also this certain authorship that comes through, um, uh, collecting and, and organizing things that already exist. When you were talking about that, the sort of like music or, or the thing that didn't click immediately, but then does, it was making me think about how that happens sometimes with movies and how you watch something and it doesn't, you know, maybe work for you immediately, but then it like doesn't leave your brain and in like you can't keep thinking about it and so i'm kind of curious if you've ever had that experience with with something that's the thing i that happens with a good exhibition is you you know what it's that nishida june show that we saw at the museum of fine arts in I boston think so yeah so in the kind of parallel show that we have um the for future retrieval the objects we have this piece by nishida june i don't know if we talked about this but he's this Japanese ceramic artist who made these pieces that had so much clay and so much glaze. Like they were basically just glaze um, that they wouldn't really fire all the way through. So each one, when they came out of the kiln, he'd have to basically destroy the kiln to chip them out. And then the inside was never cured. So every time they get moved and shown, bits of them fall off. Like you're always losing some the more you show it because they're never really fully fired objects. But then he died maybe at 28 in a kiln explosion. They were kind of everything ceramic should never be, but everything it could be. And we just saw this show and were floored by it and talked about it 
for years. I don't know. It yeah, just like it definitely stuck so, with it us. Soaked in. I think there's also the maybe along these lines is that and and to go along with this idea of, of weirdness and misunderstanding and acceptance and all this stuff is um, wonder. <laughs> you know, it's these things that you don't really get that all that make you kind of want to do more research. Um, resonates with you to kind of think about it later maybe ask you to spend a little bit more time with it because it's is is bringing up these questions um, but is maybe kind of visually intriguing enough to kind of pull you in you know the film that you've selected for this program is the shining uh so i want to talk about the shining a little bit so in case you uh, don't know, The Shining is a 1980 movie directed by Stanley Kubrick and is adapted from a novel by Stephen King. Um, the plot follows a writer, um, ex-teacher Jack Torrance, who has taken a job as a caretaker at a hotel in the West in Colorado, right? Yeah. Do they specifically say? They do. Yeah, Colorado, yeah. The Overlook. Yes, The Overlook Hotel. Um and while he is there, um, his family is alone in this hotel. This is the other thing about this movie, watching it during a pandemic, is you you know, a movie about cabin fever hits a little differently now, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> it's trying to work with your kids at home and you're trapped inside and you can't yes. go anywhere. You don't know what day it is. So the movie says it's Monday, boom, Tuesday, you know, a month yes. later. Yes, that that the, this this might have been the only time in history I've watched the scene where Jack freaks out at Wendy when she interrupts him working, and I was like a little bit on his side yeah, because it was like the experience of working at home was like I kind of get this now. Like any other time, you're like, "Wow, he's being terrible," but this time I was like, "No, eh, he's got a point." <laughs> and they're like. You can have any food in the world. Our kitchen, you could live here for a year and never eat the same thing twice. And I thought, yeah, but she's got to cook it. And like, yeah. you know, it's just not the same when it's on you, no matter where you are. I, I should also mention uh, his son, uh, Danny, um, is has psychic abilities, which is what The Shining refers to. Um, Dick Halloran, the cook. Uh, also has psychic abilities, and he t tells him a story about how his grandmother called that ability The Shining. Um, and so uh, through Danny's perceptions uh, and uh, Jack's experiences, he sort of uh, is, I guess, overtaken by spirits at the hotel. Trying to describe The Shining is not as easy as you would think, is it? <laughs> he basically like gets slowly sucked into this world that becomes more and more clear that it's a trap that he'll never escape from. It's a, yeah. He was you, never you meant to leave. You become the hotel. Yeah. It's a labyrinth, yeah. which appears, you know, in the carpet and it, of course appears in the, the, hedge maze. the hedge maze, you know, it's a. But the whole thing yeah. was set up from the beginning to where it was an, it was a job he could take that would last a series of months and then he'd go back to his normal life. And then once he's in the hotel, you realize the hotel is its own like self-fulfilling prophecy. He'll never get out. Um, and he slowly becomes more and more um, yeah, overtaken by these spirits. And our guess is when he goes into the gold room um, and he sits down at the bar and he wants to have a drink. And he says, I'd sell my soul for a drink. And then Lloyd, the bartender, mm. appears and says, well, what will it be? Your money's no good here that's where the tides turn and there's no going back. And he, in fact, does sell his soul and will never be able to leave, but has to kind of do the hotel's bidding. That's a that's a really good observation. I, I was noticing this time, too, while watching it, how, how cool that shot is of Jack because you don't see Lloyd yeah. at first. I feel like, again, any other director would have, have you seen Lloyd like cut to Lloyd as Jack sees him. And instead you just hang on Jack for a really long time. He kind of conjures him in a way. Yeah. He, he initiates the conversation. Then the, the conversation is very superficial kind of small talk. Like it's the kind of banter or, or you know, language that you would expect from a, just talking to a stranger, you know? 
Well, I don't know. I, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil any endings of The Shining for anyone who hasn't seen it. But I think that's a good a good setup for anyone who. I was say, uh, Jack's not writing a book, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the novel does not get finished. <laughs> The, wouldn't that be a, that, that would be an interesting ending of the movie of like that Jack writes a successful novel and <laughs> goes on. He's very celebrated and gets the life he's always wanted. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to talk about the ending uh, a little bit, though, I mean, we see again, it's this like merging of all time, um, which is like, I think one of the the most fascinating aspects of this movie is like to see like this strange representation of time is like a person can be in the past and here and, and, and everything. And it's like, what? You know? It just, yeah, it flattens and it all exists at once. And then at the very, well, yeah, I guess we, we won't spoil it, but at the end there's, it, you know, loops back on itself. One thing just to like start us off is the very idea of the shining as an adaptation um, and I kind of was curious if you think of what you're doing as an adaptation ever um, with your with your work. Well, yeah, it is. I mean, I'll agree to that, I think. So I don't know about the, about The Shining a little bit. It's such a great <laughs> film. We can just watch it over and over and over again forever and ever and ever. Really. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, um, you know, it's it, it it is an adaptation, you know, I don't think we were talking earlier that, you know, we're probably not Stephen King fans by any means. And it's what Kubrick did to that, that really kind of, uh, you know, I've listened to The Shining and the the second one that they made, Dr. Sleep. Sleep or something like that, you know, and that stuff is a little too fantastical. And I think that what Kubrick did was kind of brought it into a reality a little bit more. And so, you know, there's an eeriness to the closeness that, it, that we have with it and the, the fact that, you know, maybe, maybe that could kind of happen, you know, and I think that's what makes it such a great horror film. Um, but do you think that we're adapting the pieces? I, I think so, a little bit, because we are taking them and tweaking them for our own personal use a little bit. We are kind of like the author of the new narrative of pulling some of those pieces out. I think... Russell, you're dead on with this. Yeah, but what does it mean to adapt? Like you've... You um, take it and like do what you will uh, you with it with the basic it to, idea. You modify it to, to be useful to you, right? Yeah. Hmm. So I feel like we've done that <laughs> because those pieces that we've then brought out from the decorative arts yeah. storage, we've then immediately put onto them our notion of what we think, how they should function and how they should function for us. And that's very different than how they did function or do function. Yeah. That's tricky because, you know, I, it is an adaptation. Um, it's also being part of a continuum. Yeah. In a way, you know, and I see that in like in the film that even, so there's the idea of like, the Shining being an adaptation, the film being an adaptation of the book, but also like is, uh, you know, is, is Grady um, adapting to Jack Torrance or something like that. You know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out like, <clears throat> I think this stuff kind of, it, it keeps going deeper into the, into the movie a little bit. Yeah. I, I, I can see, I can definitely see some differences. I think you're, you're probably trying to make something new you know say when you take something from you you take a piece of furniture from the museum collection and then put a new piece of ceramic on top of it i think that is something different than it but then i can see what you've done with like the mycenterine is sort of like an adaptation of that original um in a kind of kubrickian way but then the sort of way it's presented feels like a totally new piece also so I think you've got like all these kind of nested layers to it that make it a little bit trickier to maybe talk about it in exactly that way as like, yes or no. Um, but if someone from my sin factory came and saw our new version or adaptation, they probably hate it. You know, like we've destroyed this thing that they've like so carefully like sculpted and valued and 
you know, like we've just undone all of that for the sake of like being playful and being weird and embracing like fast technology while slowing it down. And they'd probably feel about the same way that Stephen King felt about Kubrick's movie, which is not favorable. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He was like, now you get all the credit for this. Damn it. You know, (laughs) well, it is, you know, it's funny. I, I read the book when I was in high school, so it's been a very long time. I had already seen the movie before I read it. And it was definitely one of the only times I feel like I read a book and was like, you know, I like the movie better. Um, And actually, you know, what's funny is the other time that happened is 2001, both Kubrick movies. I mean, 2001 is a strange book because it was written concurrently with the screenplay. Like Arthur C. Clarke was working on um, the screenplay and the book simultaneously. So it's not really as much an adapt. It's like a weird adaptation, novelization. Like it's really strange. But in both instances, my problems with the book, it was that they 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 said too much, um, you know, and Kubrick takes things from the the book that were really specific things he's calling out from the plot i remember of the book but just doesn't explain them at all right and and that makes them so much more effective well i think that's part of the the strength of these movies is that it does leave so much up to interpretation and whenever you have like so much interpretation involved then it becomes so much more personal because you're making the connections and you're fulfilling the story and then so all of a sudden you're a participant in it, you know. The other thing I was thinking about when I I, I just watched it again, um, in relation, it was like funny because I was watching it with like your work in mind, so it was a really strange like way to watch a movie, I think. But um, but there were a lot of things I kept thinking about, and one was like um, the Overlook Hotel being a place where um, history, the boundaries of history, are fuzzy. And you have all this bleed of time periods. Um, and that's also kind of represented in the the look of the place. You know, you can, I, I was noticing like, oh, you can clearly see where there's older sections of the hotel. And then there's like new additions, you know, like you, you can see like the hallway where you, the famous hallway where you see the girls appear. That hallway looks so much older um, it's maybe the original part, part of the building or something. And then versus the sort of seventies carpeting that, that famous carpeting also. Um, so it was, I don't know. It was just something that I, that came to me. I, I think a definite like correlation there is the eclecticism, you know, that that is made up of so many parts, the architecture itself, it's like very Nordic, but also Western and it has, but then the interior, you know, it's, it's, the exterior and the interior and the concept of that building are all different places, all put together into one little package, you know. Um, and then you have the, the the thematic periods that are happening on the on the inside and the continuum of these ghosts or whatever, um, living in all all times and all periods in in one single moment, you know. Um, but you have like the gold room, which is very like twenties flapper party, yeah. and then you have the kind of um grand like living room area with that's modeled off the awani with the fireplaces and the chandeliers and like the navajo rugs and tapestries and then you have like room 237 which is very like 60s 70s -hmm. kind of mod amazing and then the bathroom where he's talking to grady where it's just like white and red and that i guess that's like 60s 70s but like super like clean like there's nothing in that room yeah that room i i always like it's so seared in my mind that bathroom like and i i think it it is like it's so weird because they go from that that art deco ballroom and then they go into that bathroom which looks like it's something out of 2001 Yeah. yeah right like it could be that sort of view of the future from the 60s you know so it's it's that is disorienting and it, it's also weird because it's like in that room where we see that like character switch too of Grady where he becomes like incredible not not friendly anymore <laughs> like you know he's, he's becoming very malevolent but also then Jack realizes that he's also Grady and Grady is this omnipotent omnipotent like thing that is like yeah right that's like pushing 
barreling through time and, and space and, and possessing and, and dancing its way through, you know, these people's lives. It's scary. That's the, that's the craziest scene right there. And when, when Jack, he's, he's, he realizes something, you know, he, he, he's, he thinks he's on top of things and he thinks he's really going to like nail Grady down. And then all of a sudden he realizes that he's been there just as long, you know, why you, it was interesting. You just said it's scary. And I love horror movies. I watch so many horror movies and I'm almost never afraid of them. Um, um, they just don't scare me. And, uh, this, I remember when I was probably at the height of my horror watching, you know, as a teenager, I would, I remember thinking like, this movie actually kind of scares me. And it was, it was sort of interesting. Like, why, like, why is this movie scarier than all the rest? Part Uh, of it's the music. The music, the chanting that that kind of echoes through the whole thing. Yeah, that's there's this like eerie like that's going on through the whole film because uh, so we've watched it a couple times recently, just you know preparing for this. Um, And last night I was doing some Photoshop and I was like, I'll put it on in the background. And even in the background with my photo, you know, I wasn't even watching it. I was like. This is horrifying. Like just hearing the sound is scary. Uh-huh. And so I like moved it to where I could see some of the picture and that kind of like dampened the like, I don't know. It like freaked me out. And I was like, are the kids hearing this? This seems true mm-hmm. evil. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is, there's, I, and then, so I hate horror films. Um, I never can sit through them. <laughs> I still can't watch the lady in the bathtub where she like rots um, as he's like oh. making out with her. But um I was thinking the best part about horror films for me is in the beginning where they're not scary yet and they're like life's going great. Um, so always like the first like 15 minutes. Yeah, but this one's different. This I know. This one starts it out never, as scary as it can be. It yeah. never like lets up and gives you that like. <laughs> it moves very fast. Happy time in the beginning. But even driving up. to the overlook, you know, with that, that D flat or whatever. automatically just sets the tone as this is going to get really really bad and you know we watched some kind of comedy thing i think it was was it eddie murphy talked about how mike tyson when he'd come out to fight you know everyone comes out with their music he'd come out with this like d flat tone you know Just like to horrify the op- opponent with the the sensation of sound. But also, the more I watch it, the more you know. So in the beginning, as they're driving up to the hotel, you're trying to think at what point did Jack kind of turn? Like, he's never been a good guy. He's never been a family man. Yeah. He's never been kind yeah. to the wife or kids. They always have felt like this extra burden. Um, I don't know. So the more... Yeah. Like from the beginning, you realize he's like an evil guy from the start. Yeah, he's a he's a yeah, Trouble. not the most pleasant character. But I think that there's there's a moment that <laughs> where, and I think it's like what here's here's something that like relates to like our current experiences. Um, of course, being in isolation, moving to a new place for a new job, um, working on a creative project after this massive uh, shift in in lifestyle. Um, but I think that moment where Jack, where we realize that we enter more than one reality is the scene where Wendy brings in breakfast to Jack in bed and the conversation happens in a mirror. And I think it's that moment whenever you can start to realize that we're living in two places at one time, that there's a parallel thing that's happening and, um, that we've kind of entered into it at that point. And he changes then, and then he starts writing and, um, and then it really escalates quite quickly. Yeah. I was noticing that shot when I last watched it because I feel like you there's always just that little like edge of the mirror that you can see. It, it, and it's like so great because it just like even though you're mostly just seeing the characters, you, you're aware I'm seeing a reflection. I'm not seeing the real thing. You yeah. are. But you also have to come to that awareness, I think, because it could also be possible that you watch that whole scene and think that the whole thing's happening and it's not in a mirror. You know, I think there's one moment when they walk out of that little frame or something where it becomes like, okay, there's two things happening at the same time here. And he's having a conversation to her through the mirror. Yeah. Right? It's weird. But then later Danny goes in to like go get a truck or something and 
Jack's supposed to be sleeping, but instead he's sitting up in bed looking in the mirror. And so then they yeah. that scene also happens that way. And we we've already talked about uh, in our last conversation your 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 affinity for mirroring and mirrors. Uh, yeah. And I noticed in this too. I mean, that's sort of the opening shot is the landscape mirrored in the water. Like it opens with that helicopter shot, but it's like we're seeing a reflection immediately like from the get-go yeah we've totally made um, that scene <laughs> cut that out of paper <laughs> yeah. i i i also you mentioned katie the that like the room 237 and i feel like i really paid attention to it this time like i was really looking at it i was like wow this room is crazy yeah. <laughs> it's kind of purple peacock peacock floor or something yeah the animals on the wall and yeah like wallpaper, yeah, the, the, the like there's weird step ups. It looks like yeah, the Madonna the, the, Inn. It looks like a what? The Madonna Inn. It's a hotel in California where every room's like a grotto or the Flintstones. Oh, or, okay. Uh, yeah, like, yeah. Just very absurd. Thematic. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I I was thinking about like that bathroom, like all of the. There's so many bathrooms in this movie. <laughs> there's probably more bathrooms in this movie than like any other movie I can think of. Like, it's right. totally true. <laughs> Like, there's just, like, so many scenes, important yeah. scenes that take place in bathrooms, and they're all so distinct. Like, that bathroom. Yeah. There's a lot of mirrors in the bathrooms. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. There's the, then, of course, like, the white bathroom with the, the axe scene, which yeah. is, like, the most just kind of, like, plain Jane, boring bathroom in the movie. But, yeah, the gold, the, that gold and green in 237's bathroom is, like... In the way that I thought the other bathroom had a certain 2001 kind of aesthetic of the future, that bathroom always makes me think of the end of 2001 in some ways, too. Maybe it's just that color, because I, I don't know if there's just some, some like pale green in, in, in the uh, end of 2001 that I'm thinking of, but uh, there's just something about it that... The symmetry, probably a lot of it is that too. Yeah. And then, uh, like, Dick Halloran's room is really symmetrical. Yes. And, like, yeah, that's the, coolest. the lamp on either side and, like, the painting in the middle. And that really reminded us yeah. of that, of our high rise Farrago piece, just the way it's laid out there. Um, even the, um, the woman in the in the print with the afro kind of represents this, yeah. you know, there's this spherical thing. and The walls are, are not terribly decorated, the, you know, apart from the, the picture, but the light from the lamps yeah. makes the shot, you know, like you just have the, like the light coming from those lamps and it's like, so it makes the, the scene feel so full. I was thinking about that. I was like, I was almost waiting for the moment because I was like, oh, I can't wait to see his room because I remember it being great. And I was like, oh, there's a lot less stuff in this room than I remembered. It's just like filled with light in, in such an interesting way. And then there's, where, where else is there like really symmetrical? The elevator scenes are all so symmetrical. The two little girls, the grand hall where he's typing in the staircase, the gold room, of course, the art deco stuff is super symmetrical. Yeah. It's insane to think that those are all sets. That's the other thing that I can't. I I, I remember when I learned that I, I just it kind of blew my mind because it feels so real. And, and maybe it's the scale. They're so vast. But um, it's just kind of un unbelievable. You're like, this isn't a real place. They all feel like they're shot on location. Yeah, because we went to the Awani in Yosemite and had breakfast there in like 2003 or four. Yeah. Um, and you're there and you're like, oh, yeah, this is where The Shining was shot. I think it, it's got all it's the got stuff. The, yeah, but, it's got all the stuff. But it was, you know, it's all built on a set in England, but mimicking the interior of that hotel, which is really simple. Yeah, there's a shot early on when he's there for the interview and he's walking, you know, and he goes through so many different spaces before he gets to that office. And that was the moment I was like, this is a set. This is crazy. Like, I just don't think you would see that in most movies where you see a character move through so many different spaces. Um, and I, and, and whenever I get to that scene, I just look at that window in the back. Cause I'm like, it's, there's no, there's, that's not outside. There's just, there's just a big piece of paper there probably with a light on it. That's it. Yeah. yeah I'm looking <laughs> for some kind of like tell in the office yeah. that that's not, Real. The office is pretty symmetrical too. For some reason, they've dropped the ceiling and and added two elements, and then the and then the window. Um, that's 
also has some fluorescent lighting that kind of creates that mood. Stuart Ullman, which I love that guy's name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think his office also is like another pink walled space. Or orange. There's, there's a yeah. lot of pink walls. Yeah, it's like orangey. Yeah, it's his is more, is kind of more like orangey, right? Yeah. But I, I was thinking there's a lot of like pink walls in this movie and in and uh, I actually I rewatched a Clockwork Orange too, and I was like noticing a lot of pink walls and a Clockwork Orange too, and just like. That's a whole nother like <laughs> interesting like decor to get into like in that space as well. Milk fountains. The milk fountains. Well, that's like probably yeah. That's one of the great. That set is amazing. Like uh, of the milk bar, but then just looking at all the the interiors of the houses, like yeah. the, the they're like the the cat lady's house. Like you know, she's got this like crazy like <laughs> crazy suggestive art all over the place and then um but she also has like antique furniture too so again it's like multiple time periods at once um yeah there's so many images in the shining that you remember and that was another thing that i i noticed when i read the book as a kid was like wait this isn't in here like there's no maze like yeah. <laughs> like that was the first thing i was like wait there's no maze in this hotel and in, in the book um the girls aren't twins, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, like things like that, that you're just like, oh, this is like the thing you remember about this movie is like, it's just not even there. And I think that's another way that he understood the the language of what he was making. Like, I'm making a movie. It's something different. And I think he understood that, like the importance of those strong visuals. Like, it's way better to have two twins than it is to have just... A girl who's like eight and eight ten. And ten. Like, right. Yeah, yeah. Years. Uh, it's weird how things are kind of introduced like that, but then are visually changed. Like they're introduced like two girls of different ages, but they visually appear as like pretty much the same. Um, another thing that kind of shifts that I'm very curious about is uh, Grady's introduced by Stuart Allman as Charles Grady. But when Grady introduces yeah. himself in the bathroom, he's Delbert Grady. Yeah, I noticed that too, and I um I think that is a, again a, a movie difference, book difference, but it's weird that the movie has both. You know, I think the book is consistent with just one name. It 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 doesn't bother me. It doesn't feel like a mistake, just because there's so much weirdness with time and and the idea of identity at that moment. Also, you know, he's also like you are this Grady, and he's refuting it. So it kind of makes sense that there's like a name right. change. Right. And Grady's the continuous, and maybe Grady's like bouncing between these people, right? And you just kind of take him on. Yeah. You take him on. But there are the you're right, like these things you remember throughout the whole film, like the the stack of the typed uh book that Jack's writing and how all the different paragraph structures change, but it's the same words over like those things. I'm like, Oh, right. But like every time that gets me, I'm like, this is so good. You know? Uh, yeah. I, when I was watching it this last time, I just kept thinking about the person who had to type those out and, and, and <laughs> like how many sheets were there. And like, it, it, you know, cause you know that, that, that there was probably a stack that was actually hundreds of pages and some poor sir, poor sucker had to sit there and type it all out. Some uh -huh. intern, yeah. Uh -huh. But so I, I love that that there's the, um, a, like a thoroughness or potentially a thoroughness in the creation of the film. Like I'm conf I, I would say I, I would be confident that Kubrick made someone write the entire book stack of papers. You know, even though we've only flipped through like fifteen, but you know that that sets a tone. But there's also with our work, there's this, you know, there's probably things that we don't talk about, but there's this this labor that goes into it that doesn't reveal itself in the work. Like a part of our like reason for making is this pride in time and, and labor investment that we put into it. And then it, it comes sometimes it comes off just like polished, like you could just knock it out and it's like, oh, look at this perfect thing. Great. You know, but um you know, for instance, to get these terrines, we had to make 10 to get two. And then the, just the process to get to making those 10 is like, there's, there's projects within projects within projects, you know? Yeah. And then you end up with this polished thing and you go, here you go. And you set it on a table and, you know, but <laughs> I think through that, um, labor and investment that there is a, there's a power to it and there's a strength that, 
that resonates out of it, at least I hope so. You know, and I always think about, um, maybe I even talk to students about this or something, but you know, in, in oceanic cultures like Polynesia and even in like Japan and stuff, um, there's this value that's put on things that, that remain constant, that are handed down from generation to generation that are broken and repaired and labored over and handled and used. And, um, that things, objects soak up the energy that you put into them and that that is retained in some kind of energy. When you're talking about the work ethic, it definitely reminded me of a, a sort of Kubrickian uh, work ethos who is notorious about, you know, doing as many takes as he deems necessary to get the perfect one. Um but then at the same time, I, I think he's an interesting character because he says that. But then I think he's also pretty famously is quoted as like saying, you know, being a film director is having a vision and then compromising it 100 <laughs> <laughs> percent. So it's like he, he understands what he wants, but he also kind of, I think, has a has a playfulness of knowing like, well, we're in it now. So like what's going to happen, you know? Yeah. And that's that's. Uh, adapting in another way right like you have this yeah <clears throat> and this happens in the studio like you go in or you make this rendering or something and then but then you walk into the physical realm of it and you realize that even though you drew bugs bunny floating in space you can't just make that as an object there's physics and there's like all these things in the way and that's the point where you have to start negotiating with the reality of stuff and so he's he's you know, negotiating, working with uh, um, Shelley Duvall and, you know, who didn't want to and um, all these other things that kind of come into play that then um, ultimately yields this result that you never fully knew that you could get to. It's collaboration in a different way. Yeah. You know, it's collaboration with material and, and time and space. Yeah. Speaking of Shelley, uh, just have to like give her insane amount of props because that was the other thing when I was watching this this time I thought she's another big reason this movie is scary like her fear like on screen is so palpable um it is like I think one of the most like real terrors I have witnessed on screen and I think it, it's why the movie works like you can have Jack Nicholson just being way over the top and crazy and it still works because of her. Like, I think if it was somebody else not as gifted, it, Jack Nicholson would have kind of like bombed it, you know? But I think it works with her and it, it actually becomes more interesting, this like the two sides of that. Yeah, where she's on the stairs, which I guess was like the most takes ever in a film. I think that's yeah. in the Guinness Book of World Records I was reading somewhere. But where she's just like, no. Go and she's go yeah. and she's like out of breath. She, and she can, can barely, barely hold the bat move. anymore. But it's just it's also because they did a hundred takes, and she's like she's she's broken down. You know, she's acting like she's yeah. broken down, but she's actually mentally and physically and she's broken just like, down from the work. Stop it! And you're just like, oh my god, this woman! Like, <laughs> she's got to make it out of here. Yeah. I don't know if you read that article about her recently. Yes, I totally did. It was fascinating. Like she, you know, cause it was like, it was really interesting cause she was obviously talking about the way it really affected her. Like the experience of working on this. Mentally it was never the same. Uh -huh. and... Yeah. Um, but it was also interesting cause she also like, she didn't quite blame Kubrick as much as I would have expected her to in it. Like she seemed to have this interesting outlook on it, which was like, no, he's doing his job. And, and even though she felt like totally terrorized by him at the same time, it was like, okay. I mean, you know, I guess we contain multitudes and she can sort of see it that way. Um, but you know, she was like literally living horror. Um, and I think it was because of the type of actress she is and, and just she's really experiencing it yeah. in a really real way. And I think there's a lot of other actors who can make that separation and don't, it doesn't get to them in that same way. But I think for her, it was psychically taking a toll in a very real way. Yeah. And she was also right. Like pulled out of where she lives, was like alone in an apartment, like didn't have any resource, you know, it's like she was literally living the shining COVID life alone and then her only 
you know, peer group was to go back to work every day and be like, oh, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like not a fun, <laughs> not a fun work environment. I'm right. sure to like have to return to every day. The other thing I wanted to ask you guys, this is just not, uh, this is more selfish that I don't know if it'll make it in, but have you ever watched Barry Lyndon? No. I watched part of it. It's, it's hard to watch, but it was for me. <laughs> Give it another shot. I did the same thing and I have never watched Barry Lyndon because of that, that I would start and I would be like, okay, I watched it recently. And for some reason, maybe it was just like the day I was like, so sucked in. It's full of these really slow shots of like, you know, you're looking at one scene. By the time you're fully zoomed out, you're looking at like a Gainsborough painting, you know? Yeah. You you end up in these like, you know, they look just like that sort of British painting that you're, you, you see in our museum or any other museum. I remember yeah, when we went to the Kubrick retrospective, they had cabinets of... Um, Book like books that he would buy for research for every film, but Barry Lyndon had a whole cabinet, and then there were like three cabinets for a film yeah. on Napoleon he never made. Oh yeah, but like the research, a library, yeah, just libraries on libraries of research to even start these films. Yeah, and it's just like yeah. this guy I mean, is I, not it, playing around. Yeah, it shows up. Yeah, <laughs> I think you can see it on screen. <laughs> Well, thank you guys so much for chatting with me today and uh, have a good rest of your day. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks for doing this. Fun. This was, yeah, this are always so nice. Cool to think about. <laughs> thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have conversations about the art yourself. The museum is currently open, but please visit our website for the most up-to-date information about operating hours and also to reserve your advanced online registration, which is required to visit the museum. Current special exhibitions are American Painting, The 80s Revisited, Future Retrieval, Close Parallel, and Anila Kwayum Aga, All the Flowers Are For Me. You can follow the museum on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we also have an Art Palace Facebook group. Our theme song is Offrande Musicale by Bacalaun. And as always, please rate and review us to help others find the show. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum. <laughs>